Welcome to The Sovereign CEO, a podcast where we explore what it really means to become powerful beyond measure. Expect to hear incredible stories about possibility, creativity, business, self-mastery, and of course, the great awakening. I'm here to be your hype girl, to give you strategic tools that help you win, and to shed a light on things that you really need to know. Let's work on mastering your mindset and mastering your mission so you can build an empire, live a purpose-driven life, and create more freedom within it, no matter what the world around you is doing. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm editing this podcast late at night because I'm getting up bright and early and heading out to Calgary. So hoping to bump into some of my Calgary friends out there. Uh, I'm heading to the Tucker Carlson show um, and I have some pretty exciting news for you guys, Um, but I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to tell you after the show just to keep you hanging because that's fun. But super excited to go and hear him speak, to go and hear uh, Conrad Black. I do believe there are a couple tickets left uh, just at Ticketmaster. Ma- uh, Ticket Ticket uh, he has a show out in Calgary as well as Edmonton and is going down this Wednesday, um, the 24th. So if you're around, come and join me. It's going to be a great show. Super pumped to go and and listen to him. Um, I don't know about you guys, but over the last few years, he really was my source of news. Uh, CBC was garbage. Uh, They were telling nothing but lies. And I really, really enjoyed uh, Tucker's evening monologues. Um, I felt like, ugh, yes, somebody actually sees what's going on in Canada. (laughs) That was important, right? That was really important back then. We have a really good episode for you today. Uh, I have my friend Simon Essler coming on. Simon is a filmmaker, a content creator, an unschooling dad. He is a genius, okay? He has been creating films for a very, very long time, um, and he's using them to really create a ripple. He's using them to wake people up. He's using them to help people take back free thought. Something really important right now. Uh, We talk about his film Cut, Daughters of the West. Um, Some of his thoughts on the cultural political revolution that's going on right now. We dive into communism and Marxism and what's happening in the school system. Really, really eye-opening conversation. I think you guys are going to like this one. Before we get into the episode, I have to pay the bills. This episode is brought to you by The Sovereign CEO. The Sovereign CEO is my private group coaching container. It's meant for awake, freedom-minded entrepreneurs who are ready to master their mindset and master their mission. The world is crazy right now, guys. The way you take your power back is by having purposeful work, is by building additional revenue streams, is by building matrix-free businesses free from the nine to five. This community is where you need to be if you're ready to get your focus off of the news and onto your new way forward. 
You can find the link in the show notes here. If you want to read more, you can come as you go. Uh, You do not have to commit to a a certain period of time. If you do, you will save some money. We have tons of resources, weekly coaching calls, monthly content creation sessions, serious strategy, next level awake experts, and more. Um, You're going to hear me talk about gold and silver a lot. Um, because quite frankly, friends, there are a lot of people in this awake community that are talking about a lot of the problems, but not a whole lot of people actually taking action with CBDCs, bricks and inflation. You got to pay attention and you know what? Wealth takes time to build. It takes time. And I know there's a lot of people that are in precarious situations right now, and they're avoiding the conversation altogether because they don't feel like they have excess to give, to put aside, to invest right now. Listen up if this is you, because A, it's going to take time. You want to put things away sooner than later so you can start stacking and building. But the system that I use actually helps create wealth. So drop me an email using the show notes below with the subject line gold And I can tell you all about the gold and silver system I use that helps me consistently save, grow, protect my money each and every month. And last but not least, I'm a proud member of the wellness company alongside health professionals like Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Reich, Dr. Paul Alexander, and so many more. The wellness company is here for transforming healthcare. They make nutraceuticals, supplements that help get you off of pharmaceuticals. They can prescribe pharmaceuticals as well. If you're living in the USA, they have medical preparedness kits and they have a long-term vision for actually changing our entire healthcare system in Canada. Uh, Love these guys, really good company that you're going to want to support. And of course it is COVID season again. So spike support Uh, formula is the only product that can help you break down spike protein faster, get it out of your body. Um, Taking it daily helps give your body the natural immune support it needs to protect yourself from viruses, injections, shedding, and more. You can find that link as well off in the show notes. And with that, let's get into my conversation with Simon. Uh, Buckle up. This is a good one. And uh, I'll see you guys on the other side. All right, everyone, welcome to the Sovereign CEO podcast. Today I have with me Simon Essler. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been trying to make this happen for a while. I've watched a lot of your material. Big, big fan. Um, You're a filmmaker. You're a big voice in this. I don't want to call it the truther community. I don't like uh, labels, but a lot of people might know you from your work exposing um, either uh, cut Daughters of the West or the things that are happening geopolitically. But for the people that uh, maybe haven't heard your name, maybe you could tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and what you do. I know it's a loaded question, so feel free to take that wherever wherever works for you. Sure. Um, well, I've I've arrived where I'm at from a pretty winding career path. Um, so I I majored in theater actually. And so I was, um, you know, working, and I still am working in comedy theater, actually, here in Toronto. Uh, And so that was sort of part of my origins as a creator. Uh, I majored in actually collectively created theater. So I was in a program called Devised Theater. And uh, one of the primary philosophies of that program 
was that creatively you need to create the correct restrictions. You have to have the correct container um, to free yourself creatively. Um, and they really, they drove that home hard when I was applying to get into the program, I had to audition and um, the audition was pretty interesting because it was very restrictive. You had to do a one minute monologue that had a death, a kiss and a dance. Uh, you had to have one prop that you used as three different items and all your text had to come from magazines, novels, textbooks, none of it you could write yourself. And so you had to take all of these restrictions and then bring forward this one minute monologue to get into the program. And then for years, we studied in that way where they would give us different ways of creating containers to express what we wanted to tell the stories we wanted to tell. So I really took that to heart. Um, I ended up moving into a number of different career paths beyond theater. Uh, I worked as uh, a mindfulness coach. So I ran a business doing mindfulness based guidance uh, for individuals, for groups. I worked in the funeral industry, helping with bereavement and using mindfulness to process bereavement. Ended up working with lots of CEOs and you know people running big companies were looking to de-stress. Uh, and then eventually that moved into working as a personal support worker. Uh, and I used mindfulness-based guidance for people on the autistic spectrum, adults and children. Uh, eventually sort of my passion for guiding people and for the sort of ritual nature of meditation and mindfulness I ended up becoming ordained as a minister. Uh, so I was studying what's called life cycle celebrancy and the life cycle celebrant Institute. Uh, they teach people to create custom ceremonies. They teach people about the art of custom ritual and ceremony creation. So we learned a lot about the history of ceremony and rites of passage throughout all of human history. And so I ended up getting ordained here in Ontario through the Bancroft Center for Awakening Spiritual Growth and became what was called a metaphysical minister. And that was just essentially a minister who can work with people from different faiths and different spiritual orientations and, you know, offer them guidance or do custom wedding ceremonies. So I did that for, for years. Um, so I ended up in this position where I was working as a minister doing custom wedding ceremonies. I was working as a personal support worker. Uh, I was working as an actor on stage. And then uh, when the lockdowns hit, uh, pretty much everything disappeared. But right around that time, I had been working at some conferences, uh, sort of in the alternative space, you know, in ufology space and lots of different sort of more conspiratorial alternative media communities. And I was offered a job with a streaming platform called Rise TV. At the time, they were called Edge of Wonder. And so they ended up hiring me to make uh, some shows for them. And that sort of pushed me onto the path of professional content creation. So when the lockdowns hit, really all that I could keep doing was the content creation. So I ended up channeling all my different skills and passions and interests really into that and ended up working for a couple different streaming platforms in the U.S. for a few years, sort of refining my craft. Um, I'm self-taught, so I had to learn how to do all of it, how to write, shoot, edit and produce everything. And I ended up getting really deep into filmmaking and, and fighting this war using the power of film and video. And so after working for years with Rise TV and a platform called Dauntless Dialogue, I decided that I wanted to launch something independently outside of these streaming platforms. And so I started Free Thought Media and I released my first independent film, which is Cut Daughters of the West. And that was sort of my leap forward into that. And now uh, now I'm working hard on lots of different content-based projects. 
and I've taken my work as um, as a minister and a life cycle celebrant and I've channeled that into something called Legacy Keepers. And that's focused on responding to the war on the family by helping families to integrate rites of passage for their children, much in the same way that I did as a minister by giving them a questionnaire that they fill out. And then the, the questionnaire being structured according to the, the rites of passage structure can then be used for them to create rites of passage for their kids. So I'm doing lots now that sort of connected to all the old things that I did, but I'm really channeling it into this modern war on, on free thought and human liberty. It might feel like lots of different things, but I definitely see the tie. You know, you got mindfulness, paying attention on purpose, spirituality. Uh, what was really interesting about your filmmaking experience in school was essentialism. That's really hard to say the perfect thing in, in 60 seconds. I struggle every day on, on a reel, for example. It's very, very hard. But with how many boundaries you had in that exercise, you need to pay attention to the most important thing. All of that ties together with what you're doing right now with filmmaking. What is the most important thing? What do I really need to pay attention to and what's going to land for other people so that they can actually hear this right now? Yes, exactly. And actually one of the most interesting challenges I had with that recently was my short film, Canada's Red Shadow because I was looking to educate people on the evolution of Marxism to help them understand how, you know, things like uh, gender ideology and critical race theory are in fact manifestations of Marxism and why that matters. And so I was confronted by my local Marxist chapter when I went to the 1 million March for children here in Toronto. And it really inspired me because when I saw them being so overt about promoting Marxism and communism, I thought, you know, this is a great chance to educate people because there's a lot of denial that what we're being confronted with is Marxism and communism. But if I have footage and evidence of people in my community protesting against parental rights, using communism as their platform for that counter protest, I can really show people what's going on. But sharing that evolution is really tricky. And so, you know, it took me months of research and refining and ditching what wasn't necessary and really, really trying to hone it down so I could make a 15 minute documentary that painted this picture of this influence. And within that 15 documentary, what I tried to do was take two minutes and 30 seconds to explain the evolution of Marxism. And, uh, you know, it's like, I, I think I must have read like six different books and watched so many different interviews and really dove deep just to get that two minutes and 30 seconds to a place where I felt it might create clarity for people who don't really see what this is and why it's relevant. I think most people don't see that part. I mean, there's so many steps along like this awakening and like we never land, you're never like awakened. There's like layers and layers and layers. For me, the very first thing uh, was probably 2021. Um, but I remember listening to James Lindsay's podcast that was the thing that really red pilled me going through all these different rabbit holes looking at all this different material and it was a podcast of his that went through some original uh, communist material looking at what they did to children back then because the goal of marxism of communism is to disrupt and dismantle and i can't remember the name of the podcast but it was about the early sexualization of children and that it being in the Marx playbook that first you get these ideas into children's head that there is no innocence and you start sexualizing the children early. When you do that, it causes 
a huge disruption in them. They start uh, distancing themselves from their parents. And then when the familial bonds are broken, then they're more likely to join your revolution because then they have to lean on something else. Everybody likes to be led. Everybody likes to have some sort of higher power connection. And then that ends up being the state instead of the parents. And I remember listening to that and just thinking, that's it. All these weird things that are happening in the school that don't make sense. That's it. There's no other reason for it. It is purposeful. Yeah, 100%. This is a specific kind of warfare designed to very carefully dismantle the family unit. And one of the things that I found is that uh, the reason there is this advanced warfare being used to disrupt the nuclear family is because the capacity for families to generate legacies does not allow uh, communism and it does not allow uh, this kind of you know, globalist reorganization of power in the world, the fall of nation states, the organization of centralized global power. None of those things can really be put in place if you have strong family legacies moving through many generations. Because when there is a family legacy that stabilizes children, um, that gives them the capacity to live with free thought and to become sovereign and productive citizens, uh, those children aren't reliant on government or media or public education if they have a strong family legacy, especially because family legacy, it outlasts all the cycles that tend to dictate government um, propaganda and government uh, mandates and uh, the cycles that exist within the media and the way that education shifts according to who's in power. Family legacy outlasts all of those things. And so it is the Achilles heel of the people that are waging this warfare against human liberty. So in my opinion, we want to be using family legacy to directly counter that. And we want to protect our children from these influences, not just with our children in mind, but with the generations to come in mind as well, because that's very much the way our enemy thinks. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at all the policies right now and, and really well-meaning people thinking that they're they're helping, but it's not helping. Children's mental health is worse than ever. Society, the like everyone's getting weaker and weaker and more dependent and more disassociated. The, the kids are not all right. Where you have a family that has traditional values that talks about things like the value of hard work. I mean, even breaking down the ideas of capitalism and how I, I just hear constant complaints about capitalism. And of course, capitalism has its limitations and it does have its faults, but you have instead people celebrating a system where a system that not once through history has it been proven to be a success. You know, it's painted as this beautiful utopia. Everybody will be taken care of. You don't have to work hard. It's okay. And the idea that you don't have to work hard is really appealing to a generation that is getting weaker and more dependent and not really wanting to work. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's as clear, <laughs> clear as day to me what's actually happening. And it's tough to encounter people for whom this isn't clear at all. And I think that's part of the work is to create, use things like content, become cultural creators to, you know, essentially create the conditions for the awakening of people that don't quite see it yet. 
So I don't believe that it's our responsibility to try to awaken others. I don't think you can control the awakening of another person, but I do believe firmly that we can work hard to create the conditions, sort of like a garden. You know, you're creating the conditions in a garden for the plants to thrive. Um, that's sort of the way that I tend to look at it. Um, and it is a struggle because there is uh, endless, endless warfare trying to ensure that people stay politically entrenched to enforce that people stay entrenched in different narratives so that they cannot conceive of anything outside of their own echo chamber. This is a big part of what's going on with social media. Generally speaking, social media is designed to create echo chambers. It is designed to keep you away from people that don't think like you. And that's a very dangerous thing for a society that needs to progress through constructive debate, through the tension between the conservative philosophy and the progressive philosophy. These philosophies have a lot to offer each other in terms of how we move forward as a humanity. But as long as the left and the right politically are entrenched to the point that they believe the only answer is for more people to become conservative or more people to become liberal, um, then the creative tension that we are meant to have there, um, it fades away. So, you know, we have work to do to help people to understand what's going on, not to the extent that they should join us politically, but to the extent that their capacity to think freely is, is under attack. Why do you think so many educated people are falling victim to this? So like our institutions are clearly taken by this as well. Um, university professors. I mean, how hard is it to pick up a book about Stalin or the Chinese Red Guard uh, to actually read from Marx himself? Like you, you see people that are highly, highly educated um, cheering on Che Guevara or <laughs> Stalin and thinking, I don't know, like the history paints a picture of exactly what happened. So why aren't more intellectuals understanding that these are harmful ideologies? My understanding is that this modern warfare that we are living through, so you know, we live on a cognitive battlefield now more than we do live on a sort of physical battlefield. The evolution of war is such that it started to become clear that the cognition of the general population and of targeted target audiences was more valuable than geography and political and nation state leadership. This is sort of the way war evolved. It, as technology became more capable of manipulating human behavior and decision-making, all of a sudden it could be weaponized to manage the thinking and behavior of populations and so when war evolved in that direction, all this effort to weaponize that technology became focused upon that way more than trying to get land or control the leaders of nation states. So that evolution really matters because then when you're living on a cognitive battlefield, there is um, this intense focus on controlling the minds of people in various ways with various operations and the intellectual class um, they're a major target as well. And I think one of the best ways I found to describe this is something called cognitive entrenchment. This is a term that I found in a really great book called Range. And Range is a book that focuses on human intelligence that comes from having a range of life experiences and, and career paths that bring you to a point of, of wisdom and intelligence, as opposed 
just the sort of career track mentality where you obsessively specialize in one thing and get really excellent at one thing. Um, what they found in that book was that this phenomenon called cognitive entrenchment would occur when people became hyper-specialized intellectuals, you know, when they would go deep into one university specialization and get a PhD in one thing. They discovered that in many ways they would actually lose intelligence because they were unable to take their knowledge and apply it to different domains and situations. They lost intellectual flexibility. And so I think that particular phenomenon in tandem with the kinds of psychological operations that have infiltrated the university and college system, that's very much leaning all the way to the left, that really is influenced by this kind of neo-Marxism, then you have individuals who have become cognitively entrenched to the point that they cannot think outside of their specialization. And I think we saw a lot of that during COVID. I think mm -hmm. there was a lot of very specialized people in the medical field who were cognitively entrenched, who were well-meaning, but couldn't think outside of their specialization. This is a, a major factor in the cognitive battlefield. And I, I look at it as a kind of disembodiment uh, because I believe that truth-seeking requires the body. That if you're only seeking the truth with the mind, you're a kind of disembodied creature. And you know this gets into the philosophy of empiricism. And empiricism is the philosophy that it is your all your senses and your body that is your primary truth-seeking vehicle. And if you're only seeking truth with the mind and you are this kind of disembodied creature, then you're not really using your capacity for truth seeking correctly. If you add the internet and the digital domain onto that, then you have a lot of people seeking truth in a space where they're naturally disembodied. When you're on social media, you're not using all your senses. So truth seeking in that regard can become tricky as well. So I think that's a big part of what's going on. I think people are generally disembodied. I think there are psychological operations influencing this intellectual class. I think they are cognitively entrenched and that's sort of paired up with communist warfare, which Yuri Bezmenov in 1984, he stated very clearly that uh, communist ideological subversion really does target the intellectual class. That's that's a big part of what he said that Russia was trying to do when they were looking to infiltrate the West. Hmm. Can we go back to the, the first docuseries that you made, The War on the Family? Why, why was that? I, maybe that wasn't the first one. I apologize if it's not, but what, um, what was it about that topic that made you decide to put that much effort into uh, the family? Is it because that is ground zero for all of this? 100%. Yeah, that was really the first major documentary um, that I created on my own. Um, in my research, I have found some interesting resources that point to the family as being central to all of this. And one of the documents that I found that is most precise in mapping out this war to organize power globally, to create a kind of, you know, as the politicians like to say, and the World, world Economic Forum like to say, a new world order, this is the way they phrase it. Um, I found this book called The Toronto Protocols. And this is the records of two meetings that occurred in Toronto in uh, 1967 and 1985. And the Toronto Protocols outline meetings um, that were with a group that called themselves the 666. And they said they were global financiers. 
and they were mapping out their warfare strategy to implement a new world order. So it's a pretty explicit series of documents. They were leaked by a journalist named Sergei Manast um, here in Canada. They were originally in French. And these documents, when you read them, they are incredibly precise in terms of what is going on right now. And one of the English translators, a guy named Brian Nugent, you know, he points to the fact that you don't really need to believe these documents are true. You just read them and decide for yourself if they match up with what is going on in the world today. And I have found that to be true. Um, what they lay out in these documents very, very clearly states that to implement a new world order, we have to engineer the fall of the family. It's crucial for them. And they really state that this is because of legacy. They want to cut off ancestral knowledge, ancestral religious teachings. They want to cut off morality and things like, you know, manners and all of this. They wanted to halt the progression of that knowledge. But what really helped me understand um, the emphasis this particular group of elites seem to have on legacy was that on the flip side, they state that they were carefully protecting their ancestral dream of manifesting this globalized order of power in the world, um, that they have been protecting their family legacy for generations. So they seem to understand that it's crucial to be able to build anything meaningful that you need to be able to pass it on through the, the family line so that you can work on something for hundreds of years and achieve something magnificent. That's particularly what they seem to be trying to take away from the general population is stable families, generation after generation, who have a vision for something great, who can contribute something of, of enormous scale and complexity to society that is not what uh, serves this reordering of power in the world. So it's my understanding that family is focused on very, very deeply with some very aggressive operations specifically for that reason. And these operations are very much broken up into operations targeting the children and innocence, operations targeting women and motherhood and femininity, and then operations targeting men, masculinity, and fatherhood. And that was sort of how I laid out my docuseries, Superorganism, when I was studying the war on the family. The first two episodes look a little, they focus more on innocence and children. The second two are on fathers and masculinity. And the last two episodes focus on motherhood and femininity. It's it's wild what's inflammatory to people these days. Like if if I did a social media post right now, about being happy in my feminine role and my husband's a masculine man and maybe we go to church on Sundays, watch the hate and trolling that I would get from that. And they're like, why? We're so happy. There's no problems and everything's going well. <laughs> yeah, I know it creates stability. This is one of the interesting things I found when I was researching superorganism. I was, you know, I wasn't coming from a Christian perspective. I figured can I look at this? Can I research the idea of the family unit as a superorganism that is designed to cultivate human wisdom and to turn human wisdom into legacies, pass it on through the genetic line? And so what I found in doing this research was that outside of the Christian ideals of family, there's lots of science backing up the notion that humans are designed 
to not only create families, but that families are biologically and psychologically designed to generate legacies. And so this is a lot of what I get into in that series. Um, I'll give you a few examples. With the father, um, there are studies that show that when a man is present with the woman throughout the pregnancy, uh, you know, so actually physically present during the period of gestation, there is a response that occurs in the man's body. The woman is emitting a kind of biofield and the man's body is subsequently reprogrammed so that there are different emotional experiences because of hormone fluctuations. Uh, sometimes the man's body will mimic uh, diet and cravings, but there's a kind of biological harmony that starts to occur between the man and the woman if the man is present enough. Um, and so they looked at this as basically as devotion, right? If the man was devoted to the woman during the pregnancy. There's all sorts of changes that occur. And one of the most interesting ones they found was that men who are present for the duration of the woman's pregnancy experience a rise in a substance called prolactin. And there's this one incredible study where they found that the men who were present and devoted who got this spike in prolactin, their bodies were more responsive to their child's cries after the child was born. And so the mother's body is creating the connection between the father and the child that manifests after the birth. So the fathers didn't even know this change was occurring. This is another beautiful part about this study is that when they explained to the fathers what had happened to their bodies, they had no idea. This is all happening on the subtle level of nature, of the natural world. And so a devoted man, his body is programmed to respond more deeply to his child's cries. This is built into us. And one of the other things they found was that men who were holding their newborn child for the first time, they noticed that in that moment, there'd be a temporary 33% drop in the man's testosterone, changing his emotional landscape and creating a, a deeper bond in that primary moment between him and his child. So there are lots of interesting things that are naturally occurring that are built into the design of the family that create bonds and legacy and the last one that I'll point out is that the mother, both in the womb and in the first few years of life, her uh, emotional state and the state of her heart is actually reflected in the child's heart. So the field emitted by the mother's heart, there's a, an electromagnetic field that is generated by the human heart. And there's a kind of coherency that the human heart generates when we're in states of meditation, states of gratitude, states of prayer. This information is a kind of feedback loop that occurs between mother and child in the womb and, and, and during breastfeeding and physical contact. It turns out that this plays into the formation of certain brain structures in the child so that their emotional intelligence uh, becomes something that's much more strong, strong and, and much more developed. And even, interestingly, their connection to the earth itself is reliant upon this relationship with the mother. So there's literally parts of the brain that connect the child to the sort of matrix of the earth and literally like being grounded and feeling connected to the planet itself. I look at this as forms of legacy, mm -hmm. right? If a mom is in these states of coherence during pregnancy and during breastfeeding and all these times, that's actually offering the child legacy forms of information that are going to play out through their life 
and that will potentially benefit the generations to come. So I believe we're designed for legacy. And um, it's interesting that there are such violent attacks when you talk about family devotion in the traditional family unit. But I don't think there's the realization how deep it really goes into the design of human beings that we produce legacies like that. Oh, 100%. Like even the simplest level, we know that um, like that the force of our hormones on other human beings, women who spend a lot of time together, their cycles will sync together, for example. Babies that don't get a lot of love and affection if they're not touched, if they're born into an orphanage, uh, they don't thrive, they don't live very long. Uh, mothers who are stressed when they're pregnant, babies are born with different disordered behavior patterns because they get the stress hormones coming through them. Um, and they're starting to find out with birth control, women uh, who are on birth control end up being attracted to unsuitable partners and more effeminate men. And when they get off of birth control, they're suddenly not attracted to those partners anymore. <laughs> yes, I've seen that research. It's incredible. And I'll, I'll sort of reframe that as another version of disembodiment, right? We are meant to be very deeply embodied creatures. Our bodies are leading us to a great deal of truth. Truth in this case is what partner is correct for you. Right. That comes back to the philosophy of empiricism. We are meant to be using our bodies to navigate this world and to find the correct life path for ourselves. We are continuously disembodied in so many different ways. Birth control is a great example. The, the, the disembodying nature of technology and social media is another one. Um, the cultural war on just women's bodies, period, that has been ongoing for generations is an interesting example of the collective disembodiment. It has reached its sort of peak now with the trans movement and you know biological men infiltrating women's spaces based on the philosophy that the woman's body does not make her a woman, that there's nothing sort of sacred or defining about the female capacity to, to give life. All of that is the culmination of a very, very long campaign of disassociating women with their bodies. And this is where the sort of communist piece comes back into play because the feminist movement was infiltrated by a Marxist ideology. So while there were forms of uh, women's liberation that were necessary, that were natural and had to occur in the progression of the human race, infiltrating that with Marxism seems to be the major issue because what happened was they framed women as a sort of working class, as another one of Marx's like proletariats and said that you know the women need to rise up against this oppressive, sort of capitalist patriarchal system. Um, and that was very harmful because it encouraged women to disassociate themselves from their children and their family. You know, it meant ignoring the biological reality of the bond between mother and child, giving the child over to state-run daycare and schools. All of that is, again, a form of collective disembodiment so that less women were bonding with their children this, as I pointed out earlier, impacts the emotional intelligence, the capacity to self-regulate for children, their connection to the earth. You look at that occurring over decades, um, on top of the whole push to reduce breastfeeding, um, there was a complete absence of breastfeeding in something like 98% of the American population for a 50 year period. Breastfeeding wow. just disappeared. What did that do? to a generation of children. How much of that is playing out right now? 
So we're looking at uh, this very long-standing war on the family, on women, on women's bodies. It all seems to play into the war on the family. And so I believe this, you know, this sort of return to honoring the body, especially women's bodies, because they are, you know, the sort of uh, the root of our connection to the material world. It is the female body into which the spiritual world, you know, connects with the physical world. So no wonder attacking women in this way created this sort of collective trauma of disembodiment. I think it was, you know, very effective, unfortunately. This is a good segue into Cut. I want to talk about that documentary. Um, this uh, women slowly uh, manipulating their bodies. It has a spiritual, biological effect. So I I had breast implants for more than a decade, which I just removed in August. Um, there were many, many physical benefits to doing that. But emotionally and spiritually, I'm a totally different person. It's wild. There was a disconnect that I didn't even know existed. I knew about the physical symptoms and why that needed to shift and change. But I have never felt better in my skin. Uh, my emotional state is totally different. Anxiety gone. My connection to my partner, my love and appreciation for my body. There, there's so many things that have shifted by taking a foreign object out of my body. So I'm actually really uh, interested to hear about this documentary. Yeah, so it really does focus on the disembodiment of women over a, a long period of time and how that connects to the demoralization of Western society. It seems that the West being demoralized um, impacted girls and women very uniquely in uh, a very traumatic way. So Cut, while I was initially inspired to make Cut because I was seeing the numbers of girls using gender affirmative care to transition, uh, using double mastectomies and testosterone injections, you know, I was initially inspired to make that film because of that. But when I looked at the way that issue was being politically entrenched and the two different sides of the politicized media were just saying that, you know, you have to come into our camp if you want to protect kids. Uh, I felt that there was space to address that issue beyond those political spectrums and to take a broader look at what was really going on. Why was there this explosion in um, teenage and, and preteen girls getting these um, double mastectomies and all this? So when I started to research it, I ended up in a deep dive into the cosmetic surgery industry because I found that in parallel with the exponential rise of girls getting these gender affirmative treatments, there was also an exponential rise in teenage girls getting breast augmentations. And most notably, there was an exponential rise in teenage girls getting labiaplasties, which is cosmetic genital surgery. So, I mean, those two things were occurring completely outside of the whole gender affirmative scheme, which to me pointed to something much larger, much more intense and deeply rooted in our society than just the hyper politicized gender affirmative model, you know, coming from the left. So I felt that there was something to offer people there, both on the left and the right to say, come out of your political camps and let's look at what the demoralization of the Western world is just doing to girls' bodies, period. Mm -hmm. So when I looked into this, um, I found that 
The cosmetic surgery industry is 95% for women. So it operates almost exclusively on women's bodies. And there seems to be a lot of research showing that that industry is founded on a lot of medical misinformation and disinformation. Uh, you know, your experience with, uh, you know, breast augmentation and, and, and explants is a good example. Women are not being informed of the true medical nature of those implants and the actual consequences of that in the human body. This is the exact same thing that I found is going on with labiaplasties. In fact, it's worse. Uh, when I had released cut, because I had intended to release this to sort of reach out to both left and right, I ended up making a very interesting connection with a woman named Jessica Pinn. Jessica is quite far on the left. So this is not a right-wing person who I ended up connecting with. And her whole experience has been that uh, when she was a teenager, she was coaxed by uh, medical media, but then medical experts as well into getting a labiaplasty. And the claim was that uh, she had what they were calling labia menorah hypertrophy. And this is essentially the idea that uh, you have oversized labia menorah. When I looked into the research, I found that there is research in the cosmetic surgery industry that is telling girls that 60% of the female population have labia menorah hypertrophy, <laughs> that this is just, most girls just have, a, they're deformed and they need to get snipped on their genitalia to deal with this condition. They are lying to women mm -hmm. and girls to get them into surgery, to get them to modify their bodies. This was already foundational in our society. This was already the messaging that was being given to girls, that your body is an obstacle to who you are, and it needs to be overcome through drastic manipulation. This is what I looked at and cut. If that was already foundational in our society, how is it at all surprising that when the gender affirmative model came and said, you want to escape your female body? Here, do this and become a man. Um, how is it a surprise that girls latched onto that and it suddenly exploded? That foundational message of disembodiment was already rampant in our society. And so I think there needs to be some ownership from both the left and the right of those forms of demoralization that we allowed to creep into our society and we allowed to impact the minds of young girls to the extent that now so many girls are cutting up their bodies because they don't love and respect their bodies. And of course, this is primarily occurring through adolescence yeah. at a time when they need to be guided into embodiment specifically. That's right. The first thing that I did when that all started just blowing up was I brought on a few trans individuals to talk about it on the podcast because the truth is always, always in the middle. And I had a few trans friends growing up and um, two have since passed, one from suicide, one from drug addiction. There are very few trans people doing well is something that is not acknowledged. One of my friends, uh, Buck Angel, is doing really well. Transitioning saved his life. Um, Sarah Higdon is another one. Both of them, though, say the same thing. It was successful because no one did this to me as a child. Um, I had a lifetime of therapy 
an actual therapist, not a therapist that only affirmed my beliefs. And in Canada, we have taken that away from people because virtue signaling said that only affirmation care is is the right and just thing to do. And you're so bang on with this problem that we have politicized this issue and we have made it black and white that uh, surgery is good across the board in all circumstances and you are a good person. And on the left, if you go along with this, and if you have any questions about it, you must be a far right extremist and you are a horrible person that wants to eradicate trans people. And that's getting worse and worse on all issues, but there is a whole lot of conversations right in the middle uh, that we need to be having. Like the, the data with these surgeries, uh, it does not look good and favorable. This should not be something most likely offered to children, but what's actually happening is kids are being ushered through this process so fast. They're getting on puberty blockers on one appointment. They're being passed through to surgery in under a year. Um, I have kids. They're 11 and 14. Even the 14 year old, she, she can't even dress herself properly on a cold day. <laughs> you know, you think she can make yeah. a permanent life-changing decision. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. It's absolute nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And it's why I believe it's important that people understand the neo-Marxist influence that's at play here that's getting these kids to transition. Mm -hmm. You have to understand how the Marxist philosophy operates in the classroom, which is really the primary place where the kids are being indoctrinated. The notion that's being handed to the children is that they live in a society that is oppressed by heteronormative, cisnormative, white patriarchy. So when they create this idea that there is this oppressive force in the world, they then create what seems to be the only logical solution, which is to rise up out of those oppressive norms. And so if the idea is that the gender binary is one of these oppressive forces, it becomes revolutionary to become non-binary. It becomes revolutionary for children to become trans. They are resisting the oppressive forces that are they're being told are ruling this world. Now, mm -hmm. this is tricky because there is a natural flux that occurs between the younger generations and the older generations. We all know this growing up as teenagers, right? You kind of want to rebel against your parents. Your parents become sort of a, a counterpoint to the philosophy you want to develop. Some of your development becomes about resisting what your parents represent. Some of that is natural. And I think that's part of this, this natural interplay between the conservative and the progressive philosophy. Young minds tend to be more progressive because they look at the old ways of being that they feel aren't relevant, aren't working, aren't good in the world. I believe that this influence in the classroom is taking advantage of that natural sense in the youth to create that which is new, to create that which is progressive, to discard that which is no longer serving humanity. And they've manipulated it uh, by giving them a lens of the world that is obsessed with oppression and power, that is obsessed with identity, gender identity, sexual identity, racial identity. And when the kids are indoctrinated in this way, it seems only natural to go down a path that's going to save the world from these oppressive forces. So it's a very deep manipulation that, um, you know, children need a lot of guidance to keep away from. You know, personally, 
we've chosen to to be an unschooling family um, in response to that. Um, but I know there are a lot of families that are still navigating the public schooling system. So it's important to understand that what's in the classroom very much is a form of, of Marxism that is sending children down this path. Mm-hmm. 100%. I, I think at this point, we just need to eliminate the sex ed curriculum completely. Like it's it's a little foolish to think that children need the school to tell them about sex, like uh, to tell them about sex. We're pretending that every child now doesn't have an iPhone by the time that they're 11 and haven't seen everything and anything. That's the reality of children today. The fact that we think that the school needs to teach them anything is is a little bit ridiculous. So if we have people on the left and the right fighting about it, like why even have it in schools? You know, we just had the million march here and I, I listened to you trying to have some conversations with people. And it's very clear to me when people don't have arguments because they get very, very upset and they just scream at you. They call you all kinds of names. I I heard you out there just trying to have legitimate conversations. And it's wild when you encounter someone like that and you meet them with kindness, um, a real willingness to learn and questions. And they shut down when they can't answer the question. So like when this started happening in the school system, for example, I started presenting them evidence about the potential harm of teaching gender ideology in school, like the 400% increase in girls transitioning, the fact that uh, more and more kids are receiving medical treatment now for this, that that doesn't alleviate anxiety and depression and these feelings that they're feeling. And you'll give the school information like that. And they just look at you with a blank look in your face. And I'm like, well, show me your evidence. Please show me your evidence that this is beneficial to all children. The ones that are gender confused, also the ones that are not, please show me your evidence because the school wouldn't do any kind of policy that wasn't evidence-based, correct? And you just watched people, they don't like questions like that. And I, I saw you encountered a lot of that in the Million March as well. Just please tell me about your situation. Um, I'll tell you what we're concerned about. And there wasn't a whole lot of room for dialogue on the other side. Yeah, it's very well described that this phenomenon is very well described by Yuri Bezmenov, you know, so this is a communist defector who ended up um, escaping um, communist Russia, you know, the Soviet Union. He was an agent. He was a propaganda agent for Soviet Russia. He was brought uh, into a new life by the CIA, but then was set up with this new life here in Canada. He became a Canadian citizen. He was actually actually working for the CDC uh, in Ottawa for a long time. So, you know, he ended up here in the West and was really trying to educate people about communist warfare and the, the means by which communist warfare was going to target the West. And when he's talking about this form of communist warfare called ideological subversion, he explains that when it is done gradually, over many generations, then what happens is you have people who are so ideologically subverted that you cannot speak to them logically, you cannot share facts with them because the the logic of this controlled behavior takes over. They're stuck in this seemingly logical box of social engineering that is invisible to them because it's been gradually inserted into the population so incrementally over the generations that it's sort of rooted in who they are 
And so when you try to talk to people about this, it's true that you'll encounter this, that they are so ideologically subverted that you cannot have a rational dialogue with them. This is a, it's a real part of the war that we're living in. I think the danger though, is in assuming that everyone on the left or everyone that you know uh, who may be in this space of neo-Marxist influence is so ideologically subverted that there's no point and you may as well just call them, you know, a libtard or insult them and reject them. I think that's a dangerous assumption because yeah. you need to hold the space for people to wake up out of these things. We have all had our own experience of awakening and the unique circumstances that came together in our own life to create the moments of meaning that brought us to a greater understanding of what was going on in the world, you have to trust that that's possible in each individual. And, you know, probably the best example of that is detransitioners. And I think yeah. detransitioner stories need to be uplifted specifically because this, because we live in this cognitive battlefield where people can become cognitively entrenched in this neo-Marxist ideology. Um, the detransitioners represent individuals who were so ideologically subverted and so entrenched in this narrative that they literally started to destroy their bodies. You have girls that cut off their breasts and sterilize themselves because they were so entrenched in this ideology, but many of them have woken up and are now actively sharing their stories. So they represent an exception to that rule, one that we can see in the world. Someone can be mm -hmm. so deeply ideologically subverted that they will literally hurt their body and sterilize themselves. But then this, from those depths, they can awaken to what's going on and become a voice to help others awaken. So if that can happen with people who are so subverted uh, in that example, in the example of the detransitioners, I think that's a, a good motivation to try to hold space for others to come out of that rather than assuming that if someone's, you know, that far on the left, that there's just no hope, there's no reason for dialogue. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent. It's it's these tribal camps that are a really, really big problem right now because the the detransitioners are coming out in abundance. A lot of people on the left, um, even in the trans community, are um, attacking them. They're hiding them. They're not letting them tell their stories. That's happening a lot. So we have a we have a big problem with people not only not being self reflective, they're not being critical of their own camps so for example there um i'm on i'm voting right right now but i don't i don't identify as a conservative if the conservatives start going into um authoritarian land or something uh, like i i will switch teams i am not loyal to the team no matter what um so there there are people on the right for example that are bigots that are homophobic we did see some of those people at the million march most of the people were not that most of the people just didn't want the government taking away parental rights it was really quite simple um and then on the left there are really good well-meaning liberals on the left and then there's a lot of fully captured far left <laughs> people as well um if you really believe in your ideology, if you really do want to identify as a liberal, as a conservative, then you more than anyone need to be critical of the people in your party 
that are making a poor example, that are taking it too far. You can't hide things like detransitioners or bigots. You need to be calling out like your own quote people, right? Because <laughs> our country would work a lot better if we uh, were in relationship with each other too, because it's this flex, right? In Canada, it's always been liberal, and then we went back to conservative, and things work really well, actually, when the parties work together, right? The conservatives have a tendency to get stuck in the mud, right? There's no progression, so we need the liberals sometimes to coax conservatives out because there are things that need to evolve and change. The liberals, without the conservatives, they keep progressing and progressing and progressing into things that are not progress but lunacy land without being tethered by the conservatives so we actually need each other 100 percent, and you know this to me ties deeply just into the the art of free thought that's something i believe very deeply and I, I i believe that we need to get back to the art of free thought that we need to understand deeply what free thought means to be able to define that for ourselves because that's what gives us the capacity to navigate political extremes um, to avoid identifying uh, as just political beings. You know, and so you know, free thought is the capacity to use logic, reason, and empiricism to look at ourselves and the world without relying on dogma, authority, and tradition. And that's a really, really, you know, that's a really accessible way to assess the world. And it's important, again, to point out that empiricism lives within the definition of free thought which again brings us back to embodiment and using the body. Um, and I think, you know, social media is driving people further into these political encampments that are not beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, I know this, we talked about this before the podcast, that there, there is this desire to not be political at all, uh, to look at politics as just kind of disgusting and not wanting to participate in it. I think that's intentional as well, because if we completely disassociate from politics, you know, that's a realm that is deeply influenced by this elite class that's seeking to reorder power in the world. Yep. They're really active in the political game. So if we check out because politics is so disgusting and everyone's so extreme, um, then that's where these agendas can take root. So we have to walk that fine line of being able to think freely and, you know, connecting with politics in terms of values and principles that we live by and following that path forward um, and, and being able to do that, you know, along the lines of free thought and connecting with the parties and the leaders that are promoting that which serves those valuables and principles that we hold dear. And you're right, we need to be prepared to switch our vote if that's necessary. It's not really about that. And this is why it's important to be able to point out the uniparty, you know, and the uniparty is really this class of politicians that are driving forward all these um, globalist agendas, no matter which side they're on, you have to be able to see the uniparty and vote and support accordingly. So, you know, I, I am big, big on free thought. I'm promoting the idea of being a free thinker, of being on team free thought. I think that's a really clear path forward, but it does require an assessment of the cognitive battlefield to get a sense of where you're being disembodied so that you can get embodied again. It's something that I address. I have a course called navigating the cognitive battlefield. It's just a free course that people can sign up for. And I go through a lot of this, uh, the agenda to disembody us, you know, the way in which the Western brain can get stuck uh, in disembodied states. It's just kind of one of the struggles of being a Westerner and having a Western brain. 
we need to uh, really deeply assess all the different forms of influence that uh, are coming upon us on a daily basis to be able to stay free-minded. It's really an art and a regular practice. Mm-hmm. When you say this um, uni government, you mean the globalists, the WEF, uh, Trudeau talking about a post-nationalist state? Yeah, 100%. This is the reorganization of world power to create the fall of nation-state power, right? And that that is the idea. Now, nations are built upon strong families, really, so it's another reason to tie this all back to the family. Um but there is a submission. Canada is a great example of this. Trudeau just keeps submitting more and more of our, of our national sovereignty to the World Economic Forum, to the United Nations, to the World Health Organization. Um, and so this uniparty is any politician, regardless of what political party they claim to be a part of, any politician that is helping in the destruction of nation states to serve this global order of power in the world, the centralization of power on a global level to create a kind of global governance system through organizations like the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. And um, you know, it's important to be able to assess what ties into their warfare strategy. You know, I think they have this primary strategic objective of creating centralized global power. And so you wanna look at what is occurring politically on the, glo- uh, on the local level for you, Uh, on the provincial or state level and on the federal level that is serving this primary strategic objective of reordering power towards these global institutions. That's just a good exercise to navigate politics, to understand who's serving the uniparty and who's serving the people. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the, the most practical way for people to fight against this? Like I see a lot of sharing on Instagram and a lot of, fists shaking at the computer and people in the comment section but there's not a whole lot of action right so you're unschooling your kids for example that is a real action i'm taking my kids out of the system what are some actual things that people can do knowing that they're not going to influence the elites in in davos they can't influence at that level what's something that they can do at the level that they're at You have to be mindful of getting caught in the online outrage machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a very, you know, it's a very serious trap because it feels very meaningful and it gives the illusion of action. It gives you this sense that you're doing something. So being in your echo chamber, being this keyboard warrior, being like, this is disgusting. I'm against this. You know, I can't believe I, you know, I can't believe this drag queen is doing this or whatever people are enraged about the online outrage machine Um, It's a dangerous form of disembodiment because, in a sense, it is teaching you about this war. So it is giving you a sense of the the strategies and the operations and the tactics of the enemy, but it's disassociating you from your body. And so it's disassociating you with your capacity to seek truth, and it's disassociating you, you with your ability to be effective in this war. The best way to use the digital domain and the all the sort of outrageous content that you're seeing about what's going on in the world is to then go and see how this war is manifest in your own community. So you've seen this outrageous thing online, but how is that playing out in your community? If you Mm -hmm. see something going on, you see a video of something going on in the school system, go and find out, is that happening in your own school system? What does it look like? Does it look the same or does it look different? 
you have to be with your body in your community assessing how this war is manifest. That's how you assess the way that the World Economic Forum and the United Nations are actually impacting your community, your family. You have to go and find out for yourself what it looks like in your community. So, you know, this is what I was trying to do with my film, Canada's Red Shadow. I went out into the community. I got in the aura of these Marxists. I got in their space. I actually met them in person. Um, I'm also a big fan of James Lindsay's work. I went down, you know, all of his books that I could find on Marxism. When he said that Paulo Freire, this neo-Marxist Brazilian, you know, theorist, was one of the primary drivers of sort of Marxist brainwashing in the schools, I went to check that for myself. I went and looked at the Toronto School Board and went to find their actual citations of Paulo Freire to see, is that how this war is manifest in my community? Mm -hmm. Because if you're enraged by something that you just saw online and not something that you saw in your own community, what's happening is you're being slowly engineered to allow the digital domain access to your emotional state on a regular basis. And if your emotions can be regularly manipulated by this digital domain, by this carefully designed social media system, then that system is getting access to your cognition and that system is getting access to your decision-making. You need to be more in control of your cognition, of your emotional system, and you need to be dominating the physical domain to do that. So that may look like being more active in your, your school, your children's schooling, if they're in the public system. It may look like attending protests. There's lots of different ways, you know, as, as an unschooling family, we've made a very powerful network of like-minded families who are also seeking to educate their children freely and, you know, being in spaces with those people regularly um, is a very interesting contrast to the outrageous things that I see online. Um, it's been very uplifting to be connected to free-minded parents and to send my children to play in these communities even though I go online and I see the horrors of the public schooling system, that gives me awareness of the war to the extent that the digital domain can, but I don't allow it access to my emotional systems because I want to stay grounded in the physical domain. It's just a great way to cut through a lot of the social engineering. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's funny, like I, I joke about my husband sometimes because he spends zero time online, zero time in a documentary, zero time getting upset about any of it. And sometimes I'm like, why aren't you upset? And he's like, well, what would I do any different? We have five freezers full of moose meat. We're entrepreneurs. Uh, we teach our kids to live outside and have basic nature skills. Like, what would I do any different? And I'm like, you're right. Fair enough. Um, I'm just starting, I'll be honest, I'm just starting to get involved in my community. This, this whole, the whole last four years, I have been active with the school system and my politicians writing letters, getting involved, snooping in the curriculum. I have been involved that way, but I have to say after what I felt was done to me in the last few years with, uh, mandates and lockdowns and the way my community treated me for standing up for medical freedom, um, I disassociated from my community for a long time. We live rurally. I had kind of made a personal decision that like, I'm not participating actually in community because I had been treated so poorly. But at the end of the day, 
my kids are still in the school system. I, because they choose to, and I'm respecting that. I do a lot of, I call it unschooling after I look into what they've been taught. And sometimes I have to undo that. Yep. <laughs> um, and I'm slowly just making my way back. You know, I looked into the fine, if they're going to be in the school system, I need to be on the school board. I can't get into the election yet. It's not for another few years. Okay. Well, what else can I do? And it ha I, I know a lot of people will resonate with that because they're feeling the same. They've just kind of disassociated. It's good to get back in because what you will see, a, a lot of people have calmed down. They're not as crazy. You will find a lot of people in the school system, in government that actually are like-minded. They're maybe just a little too cowardly to do things, to say things. So they actually need to hear from people like you. And that's what I'm finding. I'm being... I'm pleasantly surprised the more and more people that I'm meeting that are finally starting to clue in to the things that are going on, whether they work at the school or they work in the hospital because they've seen a certain amount of people die from what just happened. Government, more and more people are starting to realize there's a bigger problem here. And if we don't continue to be involved, they're going to become apathetic. And they're not going to do what they need to do in their position. So even if you have been burned, it's it's time. If you're going to complain about it, you have to do something about it. If you're not willing to do something about it, then you better stop complaining about it because that's just wasted energy now at this point. Yeah. You know, I think it's important for people to understand that dominating your physical domain, getting immersed in your physical community, this can look really, really different for different people. It may not be you being involved in your school board. It may be totally unique. Like I'll, I'll, you know, explain that I'm not involved in any, any of the schooling, any of the schooling system here, because my children have never been in a public school. We've been unschooling them from day one from birth. So I've never been involved in any of the education system here. That being said, because I became involved in this warfare and I become a filmmaker and I ended up joining the 1 million March for children protest it became relevant for me after I had a physical encounter with these communists and stood with these parents that, you know, maybe that's one of the ways that I can participate. I can go into my community. I met lots of families who had escaped communist countries mm -hmm. who wanted to share with me their stories of, you know, escaping communist countries and then coming here to Canada and now looking sort of around with horror of what's going on. So for me, I have developed this relationship where I'm out in the community with my kids, uh, with their unschooling experience, or I'm out at a protest or I'm seeing something that's going on in the city. And then I'm gathering that and I'm using that and feeding that into the, dig the digital domain and, you know, offering my content to this culture war and to the process of, you know, creating this sort of awakening garden for people. That's what it looks like for me, you know? Um, it hasn't been an overtly political thing necessarily in terms of me getting involved in politics, so to speak, or running for school board. It's unique to each, each, you know, person. And so I think without having a pre, you know, prescribed idea of what that looks like, let the, your physical community inform you of what that really means. One of the ways that this is described in a really great book called the citizen's guide to fifth generation warfare. Um, it's, it's basically a workbook to understand what fifth generation warfare is, what it means, how to navigate it. It's very apolitical, doesn't deal with right or left wing. It actually just looks at it from a doctrine perspective. And they give homework and exercises in this book on how to navigate the modern fifth generation warfare battlefield. 
one of the exercises they give, they talk about dominating the physical domain by going through your network and finding people in your physical network who have skills that you don't have. So what? who do you know that's a plumber? Who do you know that's an electrician? Who do you know that's a nurse? Who do you know that can fix cars? Build up a list of people that you know physically in the world that you can connect with to continue to dominate the physical domain and not rely on the digital domain so much. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons they emphasize this is because the majority of the warfare targeting us today is in the digital domain. So this is like an unavoidable fact. You know, you're in the digital domain, then you are playing in the realm of psyops and social engineering. That's just the name of the game if you're online a lot. And that's fine. To have awareness of that is crucial. Um, but we want to understand that this immersion in the physical domain is an antidote to the psychological operations. It's an antidote to the manipulation. It's an antidote even to the fact that social media keeps you away from people that don't think like you. So like my yeah. unschooling community, it's not just parents that totally think like me. We have families that have some very different philosophies and ways of living. Um, and there's a, it's very enriching for my children in that way to be not just spending time with families that are 100% aligned, sometimes spending time with families that are doing things differently. They might have some of the, the woke ideology operating in their family, and that can come up. And then we talk about it. We stay free-minded about it. And we navigate the world together. Those kinds of experiences are absolutely crucial. So, you know, it's important to look at the physical domain as an antidote to the majority of the warfare that's targeting you and your family and see what that means for you. You know, figure out what the authentic expression of that is. Yeah, this is a small example of it in the digital space, though. I, I've had an absolute um, echo chamber on Instagram. It's been lovely. It's been real nice. Um, but I've since I had a, a video go viral on Twitter. It's it's a silly thing, but I was like, oh, okay, I guess I got to go over there. And I haven't wanted to because I knew what was going to happen. It is not my echo chamber. It is not a safe space. And I have opened myself up to all kinds of things. I've been getting hate mail, like all kinds of stuff. But you know, it, it's, it's good for me. Um, I the whole time just trying to stay regulated, not get caught in time-wasting arguments, but I'm like, no, this is actually, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to see other opinions. I yeah. do want to continually expose myself to the other things that are going on in the world, and maybe I'll learn something. Maybe I'll learn something. So yeah. you're yeah. so right that it's it's the biggest problem. It's, it's the biggest problem that the world faces is not misinformation like the WEF is calling out for right now. It's... Uh, these echo chambers are ability not to hear each other yeah yeah it's you actually really, find it's out really what dangerous. we agree on yeah there's huge yeah. overlap people don't realize and you know one of the sort of litmus tests that i've developed um because i've been in the you know i've been challenging official narratives for like a decade now <laughs> i've been like on the fringe of all of this for a long time so i have a lot of experience being attacked and shamed and maligned and censored and outcast and all this so what I really have tapped into is um, using my emotional intelligence correctly in navigating those kinds of experiences. So, you know, when I get attacked online, let's say, you know, someone finds my account and they, they're repulsed by me and they start going through my posts and just like raging at me. Um, what I'll do in those conversations, you know, if someone is critical of something I'm saying and it impacts me emotionally, 
if I notice an emotional response in my body, what I like to do is really recognize that our emotional intelligence does not give us meaning in the moment. Our emotional intelligence operates in waves. And so the way to utilize your emotional intelligence in a situation like that is to watch how it's impacted you emotionally and wait for yourself to get to a place of emotional neutrality because it's at that point that the meaning of that interaction in terms of what's relevant to you will become clear. And so that's sometimes what I've done. If I have an encounter online like that and I feel emotionally impacted by it, I watch that emotional wave. And then when I come to neutrality, it's clear to me, first of all, whether or not I'm even gonna to respond to that person. And second of all, it gives me a really clear sense of what my position truly is. And I found this exercise has helped ground me in my principles, you know, has given me foundation in terms of my values, because once that emotional wave completes, I'm very, very clear on my position. Sometimes I'll realize that they have an interesting criticism or something that's worth discussing. And sometimes it helps me more firmly commit to what I was communicating in that particular post. And then I'm in a better position to not only represent myself, but to communicate with that person in a way that may actually be of service to them. And this literally, it's sometimes I'll wait a whole day. Like it might be a 24 hour or even a 48 hour window before I have emotional neutrality in that. Like who cares? Wait, just mm -hmm. wait. Let your emotional intelligence bring you to that moment of clarity so you can operate correctly. I've used that as an exercise over the years and it has really, really refined for me what is true and what I am pursuing in terms of my mission. And I end up embodying, you mm -hmm. know, I end up embodying my mission and my truths more deeply when I allow that to occur. Whereas in the past, when I used to respond in the middle of that emotional wave and come from that emotionality, uh, it was shaky. It was very shaky for me. It wasn't a good experience. And I wasn't communicating in a way that was going to help that person anyway. And so it just ends up being uh, something that just consumes you for no reason. So I found that to be a really beneficial exercise. It's something that I deeply encourage people to try out. Well, and that's why I like podcasts. I mean, in the comment section, most people are not there for conversation. Most people just deserve a little block and delete because there, there's no mind changing there. Um, some people are, and you can tell when they come in. It's like a genuine question. It, it, there is room for conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can see it. You can absolutely see it. And so, you know, I'm, I, I believe that like that, that's part of the practice of free thought, you know, part of, part of embodiment is watching the body through these experiences, you know, watching what the body is doing through these experiences and the ability to watch the body. It takes a, a great deal of mindfulness. You know, I've had to call upon my years of mindfulness work to do this because when you're doing that, when you're using the body for truth seeking, um, to an extent, you want the mind to be in a more neutral place. The, the mind's ability to observe the body, not analyze it with internal dialogue, but to just quietly observe the body becomes a huge advantage. So when we can learn to quiet the mind enough to watch the body, there's a huge, huge um, advantage in terms of navigating a battlefield that is constantly trying to manipulate the mind. If you have a certain amount of mental neutrality and your body is guiding you, you are impervious to a lot of what's out there in terms of, you know, operations to manipulate you. And that's really like 
a big part of the legacy that I'm looking to pass on to my children. I have two boys, a you know, five-year-old and, and a boy who's about to turn nine. And I am deeply devoted to passing on a legacy of free thinking. I want them to have an inner authority that they use to navigate this world. I want them to have the capacity for free thinking so that as the world changes and gets crazier, potentially, um, they will be able to rely on an inner authority. They will be embodied beings who can navigate the world in a sovereign way. That's really, really important. So I'm passing that on, not just to them, but I'm really looking to solidify that in our family so that my children's children's children are given this gift of free thinking and embodiment so that they can become sovereign beings. I love that. Not just telling your children, oh, the what they're teaching you is wrong. Here's what you should believe. Just asking them questions. Um, that that is the best way to, you know, wake anyone up, whether they're an adult or a child. Do you do you does this feel right to you? Yes. And you have to watch where children are at. And there is a kind of revolution in parenting that I believe is is emerging now, where it's a, it's just a deeper devotion to children. It's getting to know your children more deeply. There have been a, a lot of forms of normalization that have occurred in our society that have been about the disassociation between parent and child. And there's some healing that is occurring from that. And getting to know your child more deeply means being able to sense their innocence and, and they're sort of, you know, the horizon of learning and where they're at in terms of knowledge of self and knowledge of the world. And you can really be deeply of service to them by watching them closely. You know, as an unschooling dad, this has been very available to me because I'm with my kids so much, you know, even as I'm working, they're like, you know, running around in the background and whatnot. This is a, a really, really beautiful practice. And I, this is something I'm encouraging with my Legacy Keepers project, you know, you, um, the whole idea is to use the hero's journey as an archetype to study your child, to see your child as the hero in their own particular struggle, to see what your child's story is and what struggle they came here to contend with and to help them achieve meaning through that struggle, help them to understand the means by which we take suffering and give suffering meaning and turn it into growth and give them that growth mindset you know, this is what I'm focused on with that project. The, the, the design of it is a questionnaire that's rooted in the hero's journey. And parents go through this hero's journey questionnaire to study their children. You know, it's all about responding to how your child fits into their own story. And I believe that's a means by which you can get to know your child so deeply that you can protect them deeply. Because what better tool do we have to protect our children than to know them very, very deeply? You know, I'll give you guys an example, like of not of not going beyond the precipice of where your child is at. My son the other day, um, he saw that you know his mom had bought a new razor to shave her legs, and he very innocently asked me, "Do you shave your legs?" And I said, "No, mostly women do that, but some men." And he didn't have any follow up questions, so I didn't go into a whole tirade about gender and culture and all that stuff. That was all he wanted to know. And so yeah. I just stopped there. The conversation was over. I didn't need to impose some sort of agenda on him. He had an innocent question. I answered it to the point of his curiosity and I stopped where he was. And I think this is a practice that's very important to recognize in this sort of parenting revolution. I love that. I'm going to check out your course. I, I have one child that um, tends to see, see life through the lens of it happening to me. So I love the idea of reframing it through the hero's journey and the celebration of struggle. Um, I think that could be really helpful for us right now, actually. 
Oh yeah. It's a big deal. <laughs> I really appreciate your time here today, Simon. Um, you have a lot of great documentaries, docu-series. Um, where's a good like starting point for people that are just starting to dip their toes in your work? You can go to simonessler.com or daughtersofthewestfilm.com. Those end up being the same domain. And um, you can see my latest short film, Canada's Red Shadow. Um, you'll see that I have my Family Defender bundle. And so that's a, a, a package that people can purchase that gives you access to my feature-length documentary cut, Daughters of the West, in addition to my six-part docuseries, Superorganism, uh, about the war on the family. And then um, when you get that, or even if you buy the film separately, for free, you get to see um, a documentary, a short documentary that I made with filmmaker Adam Riva called Vague Rules. And that looks at how communism was imported into the West through critical race theory, gender ideology, and the COVID response. So that's mm -hmm. about a 35-minute documentary. Um, so that's in terms of content. I have some courses that people can check out. I have my free course, Navigating the Cognitive Battlefield. This is essentially an ebook that I wrote that I've broken up into three emails that you get over six days. And it takes you through the concept of the cognitive battlefield and what it means to have a Western brain in this cognitive battlefield. We are uniquely conditioned as Western beings in the Western world. And there's some interesting implications to that. And so this is a free course that gives you an understanding of that, along with some tools, some insights into embodiment and what that means. Um, and then I have a masterclass that people can purchase. This is a presentation I give called From Pressure to Potential, and it's about transforming the pressure of this war into personal potential and collective resilience. And then there's also my Legacy Keepers project. Um, and so you can find that on my website as well. And you can download the free Legacy Keepers workbook, which is the questionnaire that's embedded in the hero's journey. And from there, you can watch the Legacy Keepers Foundation workshop to get started. And I'm going to be offering lots of courses this year on the art of creating custom rites of passage for children, on how Legacy Keepers fits into human design. That's a big tool in our family. We really um, you know, rely on human design a lot. And uh, I'm you know, really looking to start a community of parents who are willing to do that work, who are interested in creating rites of passage for their kiddos and using the hero's journey. So you can check that out. And um, all of this is also sort of supported and celebrated by my free thought shop where you can get swag you know different shirts so you can get a legacy keepers poster it's like a map of the hero's journey that you can have in your house as a reference point if you're doing educational resources at home and lots of other good things so there's tons for people to check out lots of ways to support my work um and you can also check out my new show liberty north um that's in collaboration with breakaway usa you'll find lots of clips and connections to that on my instagram which is simon underscore essler uh, 11, 11. Amazing. Thank you. You're an even bigger content creator machine than me. An abundant <laughs> tools. Good. Well, you're a fellow meme warrior and I really do appreciate that because memes are, are the way in many regards. <laughs> they wake people up. No one likes to get made fun of. That's great. <laughs> I love it. I love meme warfare. I'm all about it. <laughs> uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, everybody will have all of uh, Simon's links in the show notes for you so you can make sure you won't miss out on on any of those. And uh, we'll have to have you back here sometime. Thanks, Simon. Anytime. Thanks so much. Okay, you guys, I hope you really liked that episode. I know I did. Uh, I downloaded uh, 
Simon's Family Defender Pack online. Uh, All of his information is going to be in the show notes. I highly, highly recommend Cut Daughters of the West. It's going to blow your mind. Uh, But the Family Defenders Pack is, is really, really excellent. I feel like we need to do like a movie night for school boards right now for all parents in our community uh, with these films. Um, Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think. I love hearing from you guys. If you liked today's episode, please consider uh, sharing it to your Instagram stories. Make sure you tag me, Carla Joy Treadway. Um, If you like what we do over here, over on the Sovereign CEO, please consider giving us a five-star review sharing this episode with your friends and yeah we just really get out there by word of mouth so uh appreciate you guys thank you for taking the time to listen and i will see you for the next episode